March 2020, a hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. A crush of patients flood the emergency room. People with shallow breathing and no sense of smell, with dry coughs and high fevers. It's the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, back when we didn't know what we didn't know, when we were still wiping down our mail and disinfecting our groceries. Back when many Americans who were lucky enough to still have jobs were instructed to work from home. But not every worker in America had that luxury. Because the people at the hospital, the essential frontline workers, they were still going in. There's a lot of emotions um, being a nurse during this pandemic. When it started, there was just straight up fear. That's Sherry Signer. I am a nurse here in a hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. Her husband also works as a nurse at the same hospital. The couple days leading into my first shift, once we did our shutdown, um, I cried every night, just being terrified to bring it home to my family. Um, My husband and I had to sit down and, and have a conversation as to what happens when we get it, since we're both in the hospital. What happens when we get it? When, not if. Because COVID-19 wasn't just an unprecedented situation, dangerous in a way that the country hadn't seen since the 1918 influenza pandemic. Hospitals were also unprepared. Unprepared to handle the deluge of patients pushing medical resources far past their breaking point. But also unprepared to meet the needs of staff, from the nurses to the doctors to the janitors to the food service employees. All were at the mercy of a system that buckled under the pressure of the pandemic. The first couple weeks being in the hospital, we were all just terrified. First of all, because of the lack of proper equipment that we had. When this pandemic started, we were wearing the same cheap surgical masks day after day for a month, two months at a time. These are the same masks that we used to wear um, into a patient's room and then throw away. As soon as we left that room, we weren't allowed to walk out in the hallway with that, that mask. And now suddenly during this pandemic, it suddenly became okay to wear that same dirty mask. Now, there are many failures that led to this situation, where frontline medical workers didn't have access to the proper personal protective equipment, or PPE. But one of the critical errors that paved the way to what, in essence, was a workplace disaster? The absence of unions protecting the workers. I think the union definitely would have fought for us to protect ourselves as workers. We started this series in Wisconsin, and now that we've reached the final episode, we wanted to return to the Badger State. Last week, we discussed how deregulation of financial institutions led to ruin for the small business owners of Maine. Think of this episode as that episode's twin. Over the decades, corporations left their workers on the wayside in further pursuit of shareholder return. This week, we explore what happened to those workers, and specifically, what happened to those workers when the only institutions they had on their side, their unions, were dismantled. And then, what happened when COVID-19 became a reality. Because Sherry and her fellow nurses... They used to be in a union, a local chapter of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. I definitely think that um, we would have 
had a lot more access to the PPE that we needed. The union would have fought to have protections when we do get COVID ourselves or when we need to be tested. We would have had paid time off. We would have been getting hazard pay. They would have just fought for us and stood next to us. And there is no way what is happening would have happened. This is what Act 10 initially brought to Wisconsin. Massive protests from union workers and their supporters. And that, that we have a right to say what happens in our life. And they're trying to take it away from us. Don't forget all these benefits people have that aren't in a union. The unions brought those benefits to everybody. Workers rights! Workers rights! It's caused one of the biggest political protests in Wisconsin history. Now positive impact of budgets, positive impact keeping property taxes. It's mislabeled. It shouldn't be a budget repair bill. It should be a public service employee union destruction bill. This isn't about trying to fix the, the state budget. This is about breaking the back of middle class, about breaking unions. I'm a big boy. I can handle protesters. It's what's great about America. People can protest. So how did things get so bad? What was the genesis of the pain that workers in Wisconsin are suffering? There's a specific moment in time that we can zoom in on. While the newly elected Scott Walker was preparing his legislative agenda, he made a stop to a group of donors. As we follow a documentary filmmaker into the home of billionaire construction magnate Diane Hendricks, a major Republican philanthropist and kingmaker in Washington, We see Governor Walker enter into a lobby where two smiling women in power suits are standing there to greet him. He greets them as if they're old friends. After they exchange pleasantries, they get down to business. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. Hi, Mary Wilmer. Good to see you. Good to see you. Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red state and work on these unions? Oh, yeah. And become a right to work? Well, in fact, the big thing... What can we do to help you? Well, we're going to start in a couple weeks. What can we do to help you? Eventually, Diane Hendricks would give Walker $500,000 to beat a recall election challenger. But what might she get in return for her investment? We're going to start in a couple weeks with our budget adjustment bill. The first step is uh, we're going to deal with uh, collective bargaining for all public employee unions. Because you divide and conquer. When Scott Walker says budget repair bill, he's obscuring the truth. Because what it really is, is a political overhaul. An overhaul targeting workers across the state. An overhaul named Act 10. But we'll get to that in a minute. Because for right now, it's worth pausing a moment to consider the whole of what Scott Walker just said. Video just released shows Governor Scott Walker discussing his plan to deal with public employees. Governor Walker saying that he would use a, quote, divide and conquer strategy against unions. Governor claims that there is nothing new to see in the clip that's part of a documentary about Janesville's economic climate. Well, I think they should look at not just what's said, but what's done. Most politicians say things and don't follow up on them. It's rare in American life to know the exact second when the course of history changed. But when it comes to the way we look at labor in the 21st century, this moment with Scott Walker is the turning point. When Scott Walker promised Diane Hendricks that his plan to divide and conquer would rid Wisconsin's ruling class of their problem with unions, he not only set in motion a chain of events that would lead to needless suffering and death during the COVID-19 pandemic, but he may have tipped the scales in favor of... I've just received 
a call from Secretary Clinton. Donald Trump winning the White House. So what did he mean? What exactly is divide and conquer? And how did Walker plan to use that strategy to his advantage? He kind of framed the public employees as takers and the taxpayers as the givers. And he, interestingly enough, at the time, he kind of praised the private sector workers. And that was his strategy. That is divide and conquer. That's Dan Kaufman. He's a journalist and the author of the book, The Fall of Wisconsin, The Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion and the Future of American Politics. You may remember him from way back in episode one, where we discussed how the U.S. Supreme Court aided and abetted the disenfranchisement of Wisconsin's voters. And you had a significant number of union employees uh, when he was recalled from office voting for him. And some of these private sector workers, particularly in the building trades, which tend to be more conservative, uh, bought his, his arguments that the teachers were getting too much and so on. Independent organizing is the only thing that allows a worker to have some say in how they're treated, and ultimately, in the quality of life they live, both on and off the job. They weren't going to give up without a fight. Our teachers, our firefighters, our police officers, our janitors, our bus drivers. Union members are our friends and our neighbors and uh, our, our, our kids' teachers and uh, the librarian and... They deserve a living wage. A lot of people who aren't in unions are feeling pretty uncomfortable with the uh, agenda of the new Republicans. Walker wasn't anticipating the fight that Wisconsin was prepared to give him. I remember um, really just like eating pizza on election night in 2010 with a friend of mine and, um, you know, watching the election results coming in. And I remember her saying, oh, this is really bad. And I was I was like naive at the time. And I was like, well, yeah, it's like bad. But like, you know, our, our candidates didn't win, but it'll be fine. Right. That's Angela Lang. You might remember her from episode one. She's a community organizer in Milwaukee and the executive director of the nonprofit Block. Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. She was a student at the University of Wisconsin when Scott Walker swept to power and when he took up Act 10. Little did I know, um, a couple months later, there would be massive protests in the Capitol with the the budget repair bill and and Act 10 and cutting collective bargaining rights and also substantially cutting funding to the UW system. Well, Walker announced Act 10, and I think he was shocked at the response. And again, this is, you know, Wisconsin has a deep history of lowercase d democratic involvement and participation. It also has an unusually strong labor movement for the United States. And what he was doing was so outside of the bipartisan norms of the past several decades, including even among fairly conservative Republicans like Tommy Thompson. So teachers, but many others also organized their allies and, and other you know, state workers. So you had a profound protest movement. So what exactly was Act 10? Also known as the Wisconsin Budget Repair Bill, Act 10 was a piece of legislation put forward in Wisconsin to, on paper, rectify a looming budget deficit faced by the state. But what 
was it really? What it really was, was an unmitigated attempt to wrench all collective bargaining power from the state's public sector employees, the people employed by the state of Wisconsin for the benefit of all Wisconsinites. The teachers. The nurses. Under Act 10, the price of participating in the state's pension fund would go up, and health insurance premiums would go way up. And while Walker and his fellow state-level Republicans could hide behind the presumed necessity of cutting expenditures in light of a deficit, there was no masking what this really was. It was an attack on unions in one of the proudest union states in the country. The capital here is now ground zero. In the national argument over who shares the pain as states and cities run out of money. This evening, the embattled governor pleaded his case. We're going to do what it takes to get this budget on track. The marches on Madison captured the attention of a nation that, just a few years prior, had experienced the collapse of the housing market and was still feeling the downstream pain from it. And this was really the first kind of significant labor action in the United States in, in decades, you know, that, and it really captivated the national attention and the world attention. And it actually came shortly after the Arab Spring. And there was a kind of, 2011 was such a kind of seminal year for this kind of eruption of a lowercase d democratic movements, you know, and Wisconsin, this there was a sudden awareness of labor. Also, you know, I think it, it really did spark Occupy as well. That's Occupy Wall Street, the protest movement that started in Manhattan's financial district and seared the terms the 99% and the 1% into popular consciousness. Those protests against Wall Street continue to grow across the country today as big labor unions joined in. Sometimes protests reaching 100,000 people at the state capitol. And while Scott Walker was shocked to discover the level of outrage that Act 10 inspired, the thing is, he shouldn't have been. Walker should have realized that given its politics and history, Wisconsin wasn't going to abide a strike at organized labor. Labor's only chance against the big corporations was to organize. This is an age of concentration! If capital is concentrated, labor must be concentrated, too. There was a big movement in the late 19th century around organizing industrial workers. And the city of Milwaukee was becoming really an industrial powerhouse. And there was a movement that swept nationwide that also had a firm toehold in Milwaukee for an eight-hour workday. Indeed. Much of today's progressive policymaking around labor issues finds its origins in the state of Wisconsin. From democratic socialism... Milwaukee went on to become a city, the only major American city that was governed by socialist mayors for a very long, sustained period of time. They governed the city for about 40 years between 1910 and 1960. To the concept of a living wage which Wisconsin enshrined into statute in 1913, with the law reflecting that the minimum wage, quote, shall not be less than a living wage, unquote, 
a phrase that 100 years later, Scott Walker removed from the record. The very government workers that Scott Walker was trying to keep down. I want to say this is the story of how thousands of civil servants stood up to big money and corporate interests, marched on Madison, and won. But I can't. Because this isn't a story about success, and the name of this show isn't made to succeed. If, in the final analysis, the story of organized labor in the Badger State is a happy one with a progressive outcome and the rights of workers enshrined in law again, then it hasn't happened yet. Because what Walker referred to as a budget reconciliation bill, it passed. Bed read three times, shall the bill be passed. All in favor will vote aye, all opposed will vote no. The clerk will open the roll. We haven't stopped working on jobs. We're going to continue to focus on jobs. And my hope is with this measure passed this week, uh, we can get back to a point where uh, Democrats join with Republicans and working together to get this state moving in the right direction and ultimately in helping us help the private sector uh, put more people to work. Walker signed Act 10 into law. And with that, the beginning of the end of Wisconsin's unions. It's accepted as a basic premise of American political life that conservatives are more anti-union, or to use their own vernacular, pro-business, and that progressives are pro-worker. But to accept this as axiomatic truth is to miss the insidious nature of conservative opposition to organized labor. Just why exactly are conservative politicians so hostile to unions? Unions represent um, a way to fuse a multiracial coalition of workers to fight to uproot racism and to challenge corporate power that is holding the grossest level of economic inequality in place since the beginning of the country. That's Mary Kay Henry, the international president of the Service Employees International Union. It is in their self-interest if they want to be the representatives of the corporate and wealthy elites um, to weaken unions that are a force for creating equity and fairness in the economy and in our democracy. What do we think of when we think of unions? Maybe a shop steward coming off a factory line and heading over to the union hall to meet with his brothers and sisters to discuss the next contract they're going to sign with management. Maybe it's lawyers arguing over wages and benefits, time off, seniority, health care. And it is all that. But it's also something more. I think because they count on using race as a wedge in their tool, their most potent weapon for dividing and conquering a multiracial coalition that is required to elect people into office that are going to join with workers in challenging corporate power. Because unions are one of the strongest multiracial institutions we have one of the places where people of color and white people can join together and work toward a common good. And many conservatives who know the demographics of their voting blocks can't allow that to happen. The 40 years of conservative attack that has been waged against uh, working people and then all other aspects of our lives that we care about. Because right behind an attack on union is an attack on voting rights, an attack on healthcare coverage, and attack on the climate. And so 
That's why all these fights in our minds have to be connected. It's one of the places that you'll see a black and a white worker call each other brother and really mean it. I mean, if you've ever been to a union meeting, it is profound because I think that they, they see their shared struggle. That's Dan Kaufman again. Now, obviously, the unions aren't perfect. There's racism everywhere in American life. But there were huge reducers of that, the union movement. And, and there's plenty of social science studies that back up that, you know, union membership correlates to less racist ideology. They were really, I mean, if you go to union meeting, it's much more than just talking about wages and benefits. It's, it's a kind of counterweight, maybe the only counterweight to the infrastructure that the right has built up over decades. There's a reason that the Southern states, which have the, the lowest union density, are so reliably Republican. And the reasons that Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota have tended to be more reliably liberal, progressive, or democratic is because of its, their, you know, relatively stronger union uh, density. Or, put more simply, if you want to elect a conservative politician in your state, make sure your state unions are as weak as can be. I think Walker deepened every kind of fracture there ever was in the state and brought, you know, it's the opposite of cohesion. It's divide and conquer. And that legacy, <clears throat> the social advocacy is hard to, you know, quantify or pinpoint or, but it is persistent. And, and I think you see it paved the way, not just for the divisiveness within Wisconsin, but nationally too, and a kind of Trumpian style of politics that is very much rooted in divide and conquer. And I think, you know, that is the lasting legacy of Act 10 and Scott Walker. It would be summed up in those three words, divide and conquer. It was a, a tipping point in our state that our state has yet to recover from, and it's it's incredibly hyperpolarized. That's Angela Lang again. I think very quickly after Scott Walker, you know, proposed this this budget that was dismantling and, and cutting, you know, worker rights and in the UW system. That was also when we saw some of the the voter suppression efforts. And I think I got a, a really clear, quick, rude awakening that we were in for the long haul. We fought hard to keep our union, but unfortunately, we didn't have the votes. That's Sherry Signer again, the nurse from the hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. Her chapter of the SEIU was one of the public unions dismantled by Act 10. You know, I, I had just found out I was pregnant with my first child, and still I would work 8 or 12 hours and then head right to the Capitol and protest at her couple hours after, I would protest on days off. You know, we we fought, we tried talking to hospital administration. All of us had a fear that the hospital was not going to protect us. So we tried to do whatever we could. We contacted politicians to try to help. We reached out to our senators. We reached out to anybody that would listen to us. And obviously it didn't get us anywhere. I was just thinking about this the other day after a, a bad shift at work, and I was trying to put into words what is different, like truly different 
about the hospital now as to what it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, we were a community. We were a family, despite the fact that we are a large hospital. Our um, administrators, our CEO made it very clear. And now there, it, it, there is such a gap between administrators, especially our CEO and frontline workers, that we have zero access to him. Amid the kitchen table pain caused by union busting, there's another silent injury, like what Sherry was just discussing. There's an almost spiritual injury that occurs when a union is busted. It's hard for us to imagine it because unions are so weak today and there is a kind of hyper-individualism that exists in our country that I think unions in general acted as a counterweight to. And I think, you know, you without that and without people seeing that, you know, their fate is somehow tied to somebody else's fate, you know, the classic union slogan, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all is sort of sums up the, the power of that movement and the power of it to to affect change in a way that few other social movements have been as successful as. Now, there may be those who say, look, unions were all well and good and they contributed to the economic vitality of the country, but they're a relic of a different time, a time when this country made things, cars, tools, machinery. This is no longer a manufacturing economy. It's a knowledge economy or a gig economy or any other buzzwords that have captured the attention of popular culture. But that's simply not true. Unions didn't magically disappear because fewer cars were manufactured in America. Unions disappeared because laws were changed, changed by politicians. And that's the thing about laws. They can be changed again. Right-to-work legislation, Governor Scott Walker signed that bill into law in Brown Deer this morning. Governor Walker today sat here at this desk, at this table, to sign the right-to-work legislation and make Wisconsin the 25th state to have it. Could have been at the Capitol, but the governor said there's a purpose for being here in Brown Deer. Act 10, though devastating to both the economy of Wisconsin and to civil servants and their families, was always meant to be an opening salvo. Because once Walker took on the public unions, once organized labor in the state had already been weakened, he was able to make good on his promise to the billionaire, Diane Hendricks. He was able to go after the private sector unions, too. He was ready to make Wisconsin a right-to-work state. Now, right-to-work is one of the more insidious euphemisms that conservatives have in their arsenal. Who doesn't want the right to work? I mean, what happens if you don't have the right to work? You don't get to go to work, right? Not exactly. It was a way for Republicans and extremists to rig the rules in favor of corporations. And right to work basically means that you don't have to pay dues, but the union is obligated to represent you. That's just the way American labor law works. And it's been passed in many states and it erodes the union's financial power and bargaining power over time. He was making it impossible for the unions to collect dues and making them basically powerless to do anything to improve the, the employment conditions of their uh, employees, of their workers. Now, some might try to argue that right-to-work laws make a certain amount of sense and that they're even fair. What else is a union for but to protect workers of whatever sector it represents? 
But if a union is forced to represent the interests of every worker in a given sector, regardless of how many are paying their dues, the power of a union can become inversely proportional to the number of people it represents. And it sets up a devastating incentive problem for the workers themselves. Save money in the short run by not paying dues, but lose the bargaining strength of your union. Eventually, under these scenarios, unions run out of the money they need to keep going, and then they collapse, leaving all workers, the ones who pay dues and the ones who don't, weaker than they were before, which is exactly where conservative politicians, working in concert with large corporations, want them. And it's this kind of thinking that reveals both the deadly scarcity mindset and the wanton disregard for worker health and safety that many corporations have in this country particularly in the building trades, they rely on the unions to train these people. They have a very, it's more of a collaborative relationship like you'd have in Europe where they work closely with them and they, the apprenticeship programs are, are really quite amazing. And there's a lot of health and safety things and they rely on the unions to train workers in a very skilled way because a lot of these occupations are very dangerous. And um, in fact, right to work states have higher incidence of worker death. Higher incidence of worker death. And that was before COVID-19 began its tragically preventable march across America. I just got to tell you, the biggest impact that we initially felt from the pandemic was the immense grief of the loss of life that was totally unnecessary. And that grief, because of the scale of the loss, has turned into a righteous indignation that we deserve better as working people. That's Mary Kay Henry again, the president of the SEIU. 200,000 people have lost their lives because the federal government refused to act expeditiously and with all of its power in a nationally coordinated uh, response to the pandemic. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Tonight, the United States has reached yet another devastating and unthinkable moment in a pandemic that continues to change our country and our way of life. Nearly 100,000 lives lost to the coronavirus pandemic in this country alone. Deaths from coronavirus in the United States have surpassed 160,000. As we come on the air tonight, more than 200,000 people in the U.S. have now been killed by the virus. 200,000 lives lost, 200,000 stories left unfinished. And tonight, there's some breaking news that the crisis may once again be getting worse. One of the leading models used by the White House now projects that by the end of the year, the death toll nationwide may nearly double. Imagine if we could have organized 2 million nursing home workers all at once in those first three months of the pandemic and required a unified response where over 50% of the deaths have occurred. The thing is, people are already imagining it. This is a situation where we need 100% of the essential workforce armed and ready to battle uh, the virus so that we beat it once and for all. And that would be the power of the union all across the service and care sector for the delivery drivers, the grocery store workers, the healthcare workers that have been traumatized by the way in which people died and the spikes that are going to continue to occur. Because unions actually do make a difference. To point out just one instance, a study from the journal Health Affairs reported that the presence of a healthcare workers union in nursing homes 
was associated with a 30% relative reduction in the mortality rate from COVID-19. Unionized healthcare workers are more likely to receive proper PPE, and when the workers are protected, the patients are protected, which in turn leads to greater worker protection in a positive feedback loop that only a strong union is able to secure. We've heard of non-union workers who've had to plead for a mask because they've worn the same one for a month and the elastic strap broke and they have to beg for one from some locked cabinet. As an example, whereas in our other facilities, there's a a rapid response daily check-in amongst the union leadership and the nursing home administrators. What do we need? How do we adjust? Should we move this resident to another room? You know, much more rapid adaptation to how to make sure everybody has the highest level of protection and care. I actually made a, a list of the different things that have negatively impacted nursing over the course of the years. And just my own personal list, my husband and I's list, we came up with 36 different things that negatively impacted us, many of them financial and many of them that affected like how we personally plan things around our lives. And that's pre-COVID. So that just, it really got us fired up. For nurses like Sherry Signer, the fight is far from over. We have been reorganizing within our, our hospital, attempting to reorganize. And because of our attempts, we have just now broken through a little bit to our CEO. And he's made some minimal attempts to listen to the nurses. But in all of the comments and all the conversations that we've had with him, he said, oh, I had no idea it was this bad or nobody said anything. So it's just it's a completely different place. We are now not respected as nurses. Our opinions don't matter. Our voices don't matter. Policies are changed and implemented. And there is no one watching out for the the frontline workers. All across the country, as the pandemic has borne down, non-unionized workers have realized just how little power they have and how much power they could have if they wrench it back from corporations. We're doing it. We're staying in the streets and continuing to organize non-union workers who want to join the fight. There will be a lot of forces post-election to unite the country, make sure things are bipartisan. There will be a worry about the deficit. And we say no. This is the time for the government to double down on the investment in working people and communities that have been locked out. There's a chance that Donald Trump wins re-election, but there's also a chance that he loses and that the Biden administration will take charge in Washington, D.C. in January 2021. What would that mean for union power and the rights of workers? Well, it starts with undoing the damage of the past. I think the last 10 years of attacks, because they've been so severe, have finally created the dynamic where more and more Democratic elected officials understand that they have to stand for unrigging the rules and changing the system. It's insufficient for them to simply show up on a picket line for the remaining workers that have the privilege of bargaining, because it's now turned into a privilege and not a right. But encouragingly, that's already beginning to take place. Back in February, the democratically controlled U.S. House of Representatives passed the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, or the PRO Act, 
one of the most significant pieces of federal labor legislation in decades. Organized labor has always been the foundation of good-paying jobs. That's why it is vital that we support legislation like the PRO Act. If fully passed and signed, the bill would extend collective bargaining rights to hundreds of thousands more Americans, while simultaneously cracking down on the 27 states that have passed right-to-work laws. The bill amends the National Labor Relations Act to extend protection to union workers and revises definition of employee and supervisor. Our economy is plagued by inequality at three different levels. There's the inequality of income, there's the inequality of opportunity, and there's inequality of power. It would be a watershed moment in organized labor in this country. We are in the midst of a sea change in this party and saw in this most recent Democratic primary and in the most recent Democratic platform, the locating of the ability of workers to form unions as central to the Democratic economic and racial justice agenda. And those dots are finally getting connected for the first time in my 40 years of union leadership. But if Democrats really want to be the party of the people, that organizing is available to all workers. Because before this country was made to fail, unions made it strong, and they can make it strong again. Wisconsin is a state rooted in the idea of the dignity of work, the rights of labor, and collective action. Is it any surprise that in the 21st century, it's been such a target for conservative policies focused on taking down the power of unions? Labor unions are founded on an idea that unless the whole is protected, then no one is really protected. And that's maybe why it's so important that we close our final chapter back in Wisconsin. This moment we're living through, the global pandemic, the countless governmental failures, has one common theme running through it. And it's that until we start protecting the most vulnerable around us, then none of us are truly protected. The United States of America it's a union, a union of ideas, of people, and laws that say we're stronger when we all work together. A global pandemic has made it all the more clear that we're in the same boat together. And unless we are looking out for everyone, then we're looking out for no one. Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and Roosevelt Forward. From The Hub Project, executive producer is Laura Hitalski. Producers are Sasha Stone, Zach Price, Sophie Elliott, and Dan Crawford. Arkady Gurney is executive director. From the Goat Rodeo team, executive producer is Megan Nadalski. Producers are Shar Dreyer and Zachary Frank. Ian Enright is chief executive officer. From Roosevelt Forward, our senior producer is Steph Sterling. Our host, that's me, is Elliot Williams. Thanks to Mary Kay Henry, Dan Kaufman, and Sherry Signer for sharing their stories and expertise with us. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions of Americans for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Be sure to subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating, a review, and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail on Twitter and Facebook and Made to Fail podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.
You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.